Hello, and welcome to the Lagos Institute podcast, the official podcast of the Lagos Institute for Analytic and Exegetical Theology, based in St. Andrews, Scotland. In today's episode, Danny and Jason interviewed Teresa Morgan on her recently released book, The New Testament and the Theology of Trust, This Rich Trust. This is part one of a two-part series, so stay tuned for an additional episode. As always, thanks for joining us, and we hope that you enjoy. Hello, everyone. Here with us today, we have Professor Teresa Morgan. She's a scholar that truly crosses disciplinary boundaries. Her expands a host of topics, ancient history and classics, biblical studies, patristics, and theology. And she's also studied music in Germany and in the UK. Professor Morgan completed her doctoral work in classics at Cambridge, and she holds a degree in theology from Oxford. She held academic positions in Cambridge and is currently at Oxford, where she is professor of Greco-Roman history and the Nancy Bissell Turpin Fellow and tutor in ancient history at Oriel College. Later this year, she will step into her newest role at Yale Divinity School as the inaugural holder of the newly established McDonald Agape Professorship in New Testament and Early Christianity at Yale University. Professor Morgan is the author of several influential monographs like the highly original Popular Morality in the Early Roman Empire in 2007, and one of her more recent books is the widely discussed Roman Faith and Christian Faith, which is a groundbreaking work on the nature and meaning of faith in early Christianity and the culture within which Christian thought emerged. In 2020, she published Being in Christ in the Letters of Paul, and today we'll be discussing her forthcoming work, The New Testament and the Theology of Trust, This Rich Trust. We are absolutely honored and excited to have her on the podcast to discuss this latest book. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hello, it's a real pleasure to be with you. <laughs> okay, I, just to get started, could you tell us a little more about your research interests and influences and uh, maybe how you came to this um, this topic of trust? Yes. Um, you will have this experience too. All research projects come out of a previous research project. It's a sort of chicken and egg thing. Um, and uh, my research began years ago uh, with my doctoral work on Greek and Roman education. And I was obsessed with the nature of education, really, because I had had a sort of double training while I was at school and as a student in my ordinary academic education and in music. And I was always very struck by the difference between my musical training and my mainstream academic education. And that made me very interested in the, the nature of education, the way that we do education, the, the choices that societies make about how they do education and um, how education works in society and how different education systems work in society. So I wrote my doctoral work in my first book about ancient education. And one of the things I was really interested in was the extent to which Greeks and Romans taught young children to read and write using um, proverbs and fables and moralizing sayings from the poets. There was a lot of uh, moralizing education going on in their sort of education in reading, writing and arithmetic. So I wrote my second book, and that's one you've just mentioned, um, on popular morality. Um, and I chose the period of the early Roman Empire where we've got a lot of evidence. And what I was trying to show was that we can actually get at the ethical thinking of people below the level of the philosophers and the intellectual elite who write most of our sources and we spend most of our time talking about. 
Um, and I wanted to show that ordinary people had a sort of moral system and actually we can get at it through things like proverbs and fables and things. Uh, so that was that book. And that book was really a survey of popular attitudes to a whole lot of different moral ideas. What's good, what's bad, what's necessary, what's elective, you know. Um, and after I'd written that book, I thought, you know, what would be really interesting would be to take just one or two um, ideas, ethical themes, and really go into much more detail and drill down and say, okay, who practices this and exactly when and in which context? And when is it important and when is it really not important? And just do a much more kind of textured um, study of one or two um, qualities and practices. So I thought of lots of different things. I thought you could do justice, you could do friendship, you could do um, generosity, you could do a whole lot of things. Um, and then I, and I thought you could do trust clearly very important around the Roman world. And then I realized that trust is incredibly interesting for one particular reason, because one little micro society within the Roman Empire, namely Christians, take that everyday language of trust and they do something completely distinctive with it. And that makes a fascinating case study. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Because what ordinary Greeks and Romans think of as trust is what for Christians turns into the idea of faith, which we will talk more about. So I wrote this book, Roman Faith and Christian Faith, which was kind of half a study of the way that trust works around the Roman Empire. And then half a study of how Christians take that idea of trust and do something distinctive with it. And then, of course, that was a very historical book. It was really about sort of how trust works to create a certain type of society and make it work. But having done that, I thought, do you know what? They, if trust is as important at the roots of Christianity as I think it is, there is really scope to think about that theologically as well as historically. We should be thinking about it. And then I realized that nobody really writes the theology of trust. So the current book, which is yet another spin-off out of the previous project, as everything I do is, um, is, about, is trying to think more theologically about New Testament trust, really. So that's how we got to the present book. Yeah, that's great. That's super interesting and super unique too, as you've as you've noted. So, how would you articulate the sort of main thesis of this book, the New Testament and the theology of trust, to maybe even just varying levels of people with familiarity on this topic? Yeah, well, um, as you may imagine, over the I've spent so many years now thinking about faith. I have spent many um, hours infusing about it to long-suffering friends and relations who don't know anything about it. So <laughs> I've got my pitch down now on why trust is interesting. I mean, um, so the thing is, as I just said, um, Christian theology really doesn't talk very much about trust between people and God. It talks about faith, hope, love, for sure, justice, for sure. doesn't really talk about trust, but I think the New Testament writings tell us that trust and some related concepts, trustworthiness, faithfulness, entrustedness, these are really central to the relationship between human beings and God. So I'm trying to show kind of how and why trust is central in the New Testament and therefore why it might be important to people today. Um, and I'm also trying to show why a relationship of trust specifically, alongside, for instance, love or justice, might be a really good kind of relationship to have. And I'm doing that by drawing on some really interesting work on trust in philosophy and in psychology, which talks about how trust makes it possible for people to live in good relationships with themselves and with other people, really, and make communities, but also look forward, make plans for the future, 
one of the things that has really come out of this study is how closely trust is related to hope in particular and looking forward, which of course is a very Christian thing. Um, even more fundamentally than that, in a sense, um, some psychologists have shown how people who can't trust often don't even really feel as if they are fully present in the world. They can feel, it makes not being able to trust and not feeling trusted makes people feel invisible, isolated, you know, ignored. And that can lead to depression, to self-harm, or to kind of um, instability and aggression and anger. So trust is a thing that makes us feel real to ourselves and to other people. Mm -hmm. You know, where we trust is where we really are alive. We, we know we're alive. We feel material. You know, we feel that we matter. And so I'm suggesting that for a Christian, being in a relationship of trust with God is a way of saying that we are alive and we matter in the reality and life of God and God's kingdom. Yeah. And that is why I think trust is so central to Christianity. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I, I take it then that there are particular notions of trust that you're working with right within the monograph. So how would you sort of um, define or maybe not define, but talk about trust and what it means or pistis? Um, how was pistis characterized in the New Testament? Yeah, the, the word, um, well, the word which I'm translating as trust, as you're pointing to, um, in, New, in, in Greek in general and in New Testament texts is pistis. Pistis is a very interesting and complex word, and it's equivalent in Latin, also a big language for early Christians, um, is fides, which is similarly a, a very interesting, complex word. And both They have a very similar range of meaning, and they mean trust, trustworthiness, faithfulness, good faith, important, especially to Romans, but also things like commercial credit and a proof in an argument and a legal trusteeship or a legal trust. And they can also mean belief, or they, they don't commonly mean belief in everyday parlance. Um, so that's the kind of palette of everyday meanings of pistis language that Christians have to draw on. And then the whole question of my work really in recent years has been um, how much and how quickly did they depart from that? How much did they add to that? And one very clear way was obvious to any Christian now that they depart from the mainstream is by making belief a much more important aspect of business than most ordinary Greeks and Romans would think of it as being. Um, but also they just they just add a lot of dimensions to it, really. So alongside belief, it's confidence. Um, it's knowledge. The claim of knowledge of God can be part of what comes to be called faith, can be called but pistis, what Christians call pistis or fides. Um, but also things like the leap of faith, fideism, the eyes of faith. You know, the eyes that can see what, what the, the physical eyes can't see. Um, but and also practical things, worship, prayer, participation in the sacraments. All those things can also be part of what Christians would call pistis or fides what we would now call faith. So the concept kind of gets richer and richer through time for Christians. Great. The follow-up, I guess, to that then is, what is the connection between trust and faith? You've mentioned all these different, I guess, faith types, if you can call it or frame it in terms of like maybe a taxonomy or something. Um, but how do you see the connection working um, within the New Testament? Yeah. Well, um, it always depends a little bit um, who you are and how you're using the terms. Yeah. So, um, some modern philosophers, some like Robert Audi, for instance, as a philosopher of religion, um, might use the word faith, meaning really the sort of the trust register 
of um, of what we might call the bigger concept of faith. So people do use this language in slightly different ways. But the way that I try to use it, I try to in English, I try to use faith for the really complex concept, the sort of developed concept. And I think that um, almost everything that modern Christians mean by faith um, has developed by about the mid or late fifth century. It's really very early. The early church is a period of enormous development. I suspect two things that haven't quite made it into the concept of faith by the late fifth century. One is fideism, interestingly, the idea um, that you believe something or you trust something, dis, you know, in the absence, deliberately, self-consciously in the absence of evidence or even despite the evidence. That kind of real radical leap of faith thing. And when, when early Christians talk about the step of faith or the leap of faith, they mean something much more like everyday risk taking. You know, so Origen can, for instance, can talk about, you know, well, we trust in God and it is a step to trust in God or trust in Christ. But then we, we make that kind of step every day. We sow our fields, we plant our fields and we trust that the, the crops will come up. We, we go to sea and trust that the boat will hold us, you know. So we, we, we perform acts of trust every day and we, we actually um, stake our lives on acts of trust every day. Um, and that's what we're doing when we trust in God. So when Origen talks about a step of faith, he's talking about kind of rational risk, really. Mm. When a modern person talks about the leap of faith, they're talking about kind of um, a deliberate act in the absence of any kind of evidence. It's a much more kind of radical, mystical thing. So that is not quite there in the early church, I think. And the other thing that isn't quite there is talking about the faith in the sense of the religion as a whole, mm. which is so familiar to us. Mm. And I thought when I, I was first working on the early church and faith, um, I thought that that would be quite an early meaning of faith language for Christians. But actually, I don't think it is. I think when right up to the fifth century, at least, when Christians talk about the faith, in the, they, mean a, they can use it to mean a package of teaching, the package of teaching. But they don't use it to mean kind of the religion as a whole quite in antiquity. I think that's a post-antique sort of meaning. So I take it that and what I'm always trying to do is work out exactly what people mean, Christians or anybody else means by pistis language, say, at a particular moment in a particular context. Um, and broadly speaking, I'm tracing that as start, you know, for Christians, it starts out that it's trust, faithfulness, entrustedness. And it develops all the other meanings as they go along. Cool. Wonderful. Yeah. Okay, so you kind of touched on this briefly um, initially, but we we're looking at kind of the significance of trust mm -hmm. and individual and social relationships, um, just generally, um, and then how that that trust functions within kind of a group level. For example, even within the church or even outside of the church. Um, so if you could touch on that a little bit. Yeah. So I was talking a minute ago a bit about um, the way that psychologists um, and philosophers have thought about trust. And especially I think psychology is incredibly revealing, very helpful for us, really, because it talks about how difficult it is to have any confidence in yourself and how difficult it is to make relationships without trust. So that's a really you know, that's, the, that's an absolutely fundamental thing. You really can't do much in life if you can't trust. You really, in the end, probably can't survive if you can't trust somebody or something. You know? <laughs> um, so that's the kind of fundamental, basic individual and social significance of it. Um, but the way it works in churches, in, say, let's say for the sake of argument, New Testament texts, mm -hmm. um, is quite um, distinctive and quite odd in some ways. 
And what I mean by that is that um, New Testament writers talk about um, God being faithful to people. They talk about the, um, the, the trust, the um, faithfulness of Christ, I think both to God and to people. Um, and they talk about the trust and faithfulness that people have to have towards God and to Christ. Fine. What they do not really talk about is people having trust in each other. Hmm. Um, and this is really very unexpected because after all, apart from anything else, um, you know, at very early churches are new communities. You would have thought trust would be absolutely fundamental. So why don't they talk about trust? Now, I have a slightly um, flippant explanation of this, which is that maybe, you know, most very early community, Christian communities are probably a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. Maybe trust was actually a bit of an issue. Hmm. Interesting between all these groups, particularly if some of them are still keeping the Jewish law and some of them are not. And we know that there are disputes among people who do and don't keep the law. Is that some point of tension? There are probably other points of tension. Some of the Gentiles are probably still going to the pagan temples, and that is wildly unacceptable to the Jews. You know, there might be all sorts of reasons why they actually find it quite difficult to trust each other. Maybe um, there is so much language in the New Testament of people loving each other because love is actually kind of slightly more possible. You might make the effort to love where you actually find it quite difficult to trust. Maybe. Anyway, that's my sort of slightly flippant sociological explanation. That's an interesting. That's very interesting yeah. to point that out, that it is easier for us to maybe understand loving somebody rather than trusting them. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe. I mean, I think there is, I think, more trust in practice when you drill down in these communities than there appears on the surface. And one reason is that think Paul, for instance, talks about himself as trusting and being faithful to God and to Christ, um, God entrusting him with his ministry. But then he also talks about his co-workers, someone like Timothy in 1 Corinthians, as pistos, as trustworthy and faithful to me. And because Timothy is faithful to Paul, Paul is commending Timothy to the Corinthians. So the Corinthians can trust Timothy because Paul trusts Timothy. And that's there's a kind of chain of entrusting that goes down from God through Christ, through the apostles, through the apostles' helpers, to community leaders. And everybody can trust the other, the next person because the next person is trusted by someone else ultimately to God. So there must be trust within communities. You know, you can trust your community leader because they have been entrusted by Paul. You can, entrust, you can trust your prophets or your teachers because they've received the gift of the spirit. God has entrusted them with something. Say. So I think there is a bit more trust going on than we might think, but it's all going through God. And I do think that is probably important for Christians, that for Christians, the first thing is that God entrusts them with something. Hmm. And because of that, they can be trustworthy to other people. And because of that, other people can trust them. So Christian, and this is quite interesting, I think, because it taps into a debate that we are very much having now in the contemporary world about trust. Um, because we we worry a lot in the contemporary world about um, who we can trust. Can we trust the internet? Can we trust the government? Can we trust big business? Can we trust anybody? You know, I think Christians would say it's the question is not really which people can I trust. The question is, do I put my trust in God? And do I let God entrust people with things? And do I allow myself to be trustworthy to God? And do I then allow myself to be trustworthy to other people and invite people to trust me on that basis? So Christians really think of trust kind of from the opposite direction to a lot of modern debate in a way which I think is quite helpful. Yeah, that's super interesting. And I'm curious too if, um, I mean, you talk about this in the book, but sort of the connection between um, 
that Christians are sort of called to have or place their trust in God and Christ and maybe like contemporary sort of uh, philosophical definitions of trust, which uh, typically center the concept on reliance or relying. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious the, the ways you connect that in your sort of um, articulation of what trust means. And um, yeah, if you could say more about that, would be great. Yeah. Um, there are some very interesting differences, I think, between the ways that Christians think about trust and the way that philosophers think about trust too. And although I've drawn on a lot of philosophy, in yeah. some ways, I think the picture is very different for Christians. So um, philosophers tend to think that the basic form of trust is what they call three-place trust. So A trusts B for something, to do something that A thinks B is competent and willing to do. That's the most common kind of basic model of trust. And A trusts B because A wants to get something out of it. And A thinks that B is able and willing to do this thing. Um, and B, we have to assume, is just kind of willing to go along with this. You know. uh, now, this is very different from, I think, from what Christians think. Um, so human beings, Christians, are invited to put their trust in God, like A trusting B. But they don't trust God to do something for them that they want because they want it, which is sort of the standard human model. Hmm. I think it's more like um, faithful people have to trust God to be God and to fulfill God's agenda and that whatever God's agenda is, is what is best for the world. So you have to, as a Christian, you trust God to, to be God, to do what God wants to do, not to do what you want to do, you know. And you don't trust God because you think God is competent to do what you want to do. You think you trust God because God is competent, full stop. <laughs> God is omnipotent and omniscient and all loving and um, uh, and can and will, you know, fulfill God's agenda. Really, with, um, human cooperation, we hope. Uh, but um, so that's a really different kind of feel, you know. Yeah. Um, philosophers do also sometimes talk about what they call two-place trust, um, and that is... That's, I think, got a, that's got a closer relationship with some things Christians say. So that's the idea that A trusts B and B trusts A just for the sake of the relationship. It's part of a, a relationship, which is an ongoing, open-ended relationship. And A and B might not want anything from each other at this particular moment, but they just trust for each other for the indefinite future, for whatever their, their lives, you know, wherever their lives may take them. And I think that's a bit more like something that Christians do um, uh, because of the relationship with the relationship of trust with God. It does have a, a forward looking aspect. It is not because you expect God to give you salvation, but because you hope for salvation. So it does have a sort of um, future object. But also, I think there's an element of the Christian relationship with God, which is just about this is the right kind of relationship to be in. It's a good place to be. God. And interestingly, there is a little bit of, I think, debate visible about this within early Christian sources, because there is there's a bit of debate about whether whether, as it were, after the end time, when everything has been fulfilled and those who are saved are in a permanent relationship of eternal life in God's kingdom, whether they still trust in that in God's kingdom after the end time. And some people think there is. Irenaeus thought there was, for instance. So it's a, it's a thing which is good in its own right. And I think Paul probably thought there was. I think he thinks it's part of, you know, just the nature of a good relationship. 
with God. But Augustine, for instance, doesn't. Augustine thinks that at the end time, you don't need trust anymore and you don't need hope anymore. There will only be love. Hmm. There's a sort of interesting debate among Christians about whether the trust relationship with God is just good in its own right, as some philosophers would say, yeah. or whether it is always kind of looking forward to something. Yeah. Can I pop in and just ask a quick follow-up? So yeah, there's an interesting then, um, I guess, consideration with what uh, your understanding of uh, the divine human relationship um, and how that sort of backwardly impacts what you think the role or function of trust is. So um, how, how uh, I guess, much do you see these differences and various understandings of the divine human relationship working out in various thinkers throughout, I guess, church history? Um, is it that there's certain instances in which you have this strong emphasis on uh, relationship, relationality with God, and perhaps even where this connects to like union with God sort of talk or speech? Um, and is it there sort of parallel where you see sort of trust emphasized in those contexts and constructs of the divine human relationship over against some of these other ones that you've mentioned? Yeah, yes. I mean, as you say, um, there are an awful lot of ways of conceptualizing what we hope for, the ultimate end, what we ultimately hope for. Um, uh, whether it is, you know, life, eternal life, salvation, forgiveness, reconciliation, union with God, right standing with God, being part of the kingdom, um, being children and heirs, eternal glory, you know, a lot of different images out there from the New Testament onwards. Um, I think, um, for my taste, I think trust is pretty compatible with all of them, really. Um, I think it's certainly compatible with all the visions um, the visions of what we hope for, which are very relational. Um, you know, everything about sort of, you know, eternal life, life in God's kingdom, salvation, reconciliation, everything that is all that very re relational imagery, I think, is compatible with the idea that trust not only makes it possible, but also is part of the ultimate relationship. Union with um, God, um, uh, union with Christ is um, interestingly a slightly different one. Uh, because it, that might sort of move beyond the relational in some sense. Mm. Um, and then maybe you don't need trust, although um, some philosophers say would say that self-trust is also, is, you know, is, is an important part of being an integrated person. Some psychologists would also sort of emphasize that. So maybe, I mean, does God, it, does God trust God's self? I think on my model, I would probably have to argue that God does trust God's self. God backs God's self to, to be able to achieve reconciliation with humanity, even maybe through, say, quite a non-traditional type of Messiah. You know, I've argued in this book, and we might talk about it later, um, that um, by trusting Christ to come into the world on behalf of human beings, God is taking a risk. He's doing something new, quite non-traditional as it were, um, it's a risk. Now, if God is taking a risk on humanity, which I find quite an attractive idea in a way, um, then I guess God must trust God's self to, you know, that it's going to work out to, to, to be taking the risk. So if if God can trust God's self, then even perhaps if human beings ultimately are in union with Christ, with God, um, then self-trust might still be pos possible as part of that hmm. image, I guess. Yeah, that's super interesting. Okay. All right. I guess we can look kind of in the in the Hebrew scriptures and in the New Testament. 
can you help us see maybe if there is a difference in the way that um, pistis or trust is understood um, yeah. both in those contexts? Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Um, so um, there are sort of two questions entwined there, I guess. One is a question of language and one is a question of context. Right. Um, because um, probably the range, so that the the, um, the the term, the nearest equivalent in Hebrew, I suppose, to Greek pistis is probably the Hebrew emuna. And um, that is often translated as trust. But it's also often pointed out by Hebrew scholars that it's got a slightly different range of meaning, really, from the Greek word. And it majors much more on the sort of God of being very reliable, being a firm foundation. It's got that very kind of um, uh, physical imagery of the rock, the firm foundation to it. Um, and it's it's much less on the sort of belief side of things. Right. So, um, so one question you might be one might ask is um, if 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 God has a quality which we translate trustworthiness or faithfulness in the Hebrew Bible. Is it a slight, is it, is the sort of emunah of God, the trustworthiness, a bit different from the pistis of God for a Greek speaker? Now, Greeks, the Greek speakers who created the Septuagint, the Greek, the ancient Greek version of the Hebrew Bible, did often translate um, emunah language with pistis language. So they thought that was a rough equivalent, at least. They also actually quite often translate it with aletha, with truth language. God is truth. It's the truth foundation of everything, living truth, you know. So they also thought um, uh, that was, um, and occasionally they translate it with hope language. So actually, so so the Greek speakers who translated the Hebrew Bible into to Greek in the, from the sort of third century BC onwards, they thought that the trustworthiness of God in the Hebrew Bible was a bit to do with God being a firm foundation, a bit to do with God being the ground of reality, a bit to do with God being trustworthy in a sort of Greek sense, and a bit to do with God being the reason that we hope. And I think probably um, in the Greek New Testament, that idea of God as the kind of, um, the, as ultimate, as the ground of truth is a little bit less prominent. Um, and um, God is a sure foundation, and you do get the language of God or Christ as a sure foundation in the New Testament. It is, I think, a little bit less obvious in passages where Pistis language is used. So I think the Greek New Testament is pushing people to think a little bit more towards relational trustworthiness, relational faithfulness, um, and also a bit towards believability, though that I think is not a big thing until a bit later. So just, um, just the difference between the Hebrew language and the Greek language slightly suggests that the way that God is thought about pushes you to think about God in a slightly different way in the different languages and therefore in the different um, in the Hebrew Bible as opposed to the New Testament, the different parts of our Bible. So that's the thing. Um, there's also a question about context, I think. Um, and in the Hebrew Bible, um, God is sometimes referred as, faith, as, as um, referred to as faithful or trustworthy. Um, as creator, but by far the most often, God is referred to as faithful within the covenant with Israel. Hmm. So, um, so above all, um, uh, the writers of the Hebrew Bible thought of God as um, faithful within God's covenant 
we're not quite so worried about what, you know, in what terms God is faithful or trustworthy outside the government, but within the government, God's faithfulness is big. You know, uh, God will never break faith with Israel, even though Israel will screw up. God will find a way to renew the covenant with them. And that's now um, in the New Testament. Actually, um, there's a lot more language connecting pistis with creation. Hmm sometimes with God, actually very often interesting in Christ. And it's one of the ways in which some writers link God and Christ very closely and see God, um, Christ as even pre-existent and co-creator with God by talking about Christ as pistis, as creator, pistos, as creator, faithless creator. So, um, so there's quite a strong theme in the New Testament that God and Christ are faithful as creating because they create the world. Hmm. Yeah. And that's a bigger thing, I think. And that, that to me is quite an interesting theme in the modern world where we are so concerned about our relationship with creation, actually. And I think there is a basis there for a trust-related kind of theology of creation and the idea, well, the idea I'm quite interested in exploring, maybe at some point in the future, um, that it's only when um, human beings come back in their, into their right relationship with creation that they'll really be in their right relationship with God. So, you know, you, God is it's trustworthy as creator, but also demands trust as creator and therefore demands that you treat the rest of creation right. That's part of your relationship with God. So that's a bigger theme in the New Testament, I think. Uh, but but on the other hand, um, the New Testament pistis language is um, is everywhere when Christians are talking about the new thing that God has done through Christ. And of course, trusting Christ is a really big theme, not just trusting God, but trusting Christ. Or, you know, and very often it's left open in New Testament writings, whether the writer is referring to God or Christ or both together. You know, but it's always, it's nearly always possible to, to take trust languages referring to Christ. Really. So for Christians, God has done this new thing. Salvation is through Christ. Um, it's really important that you put your trust in Christ. And that's, and that is in the context of the, of the new thing, the new relationship. Now, um, New Testament writings vary in whether they connect that with the Old Testament Hebrew Bible covenant language by saying that what God offers through Christ is a new covenant. Hmm. So some New Testament writers will go with the covenant theme following the Hebrew Bible and say, well, through Christ, there is a new covenant. But some writers are not that interested in the new covenant. And really, it's all about the relationship with Christ. Hmm. And they have really departed a long way from the way that the Old Testament uses trust language. Because for, really, for the Hebrew Bible, it's about trust within the covenant, faithfulness within the covenant. For Christians, it's about trust and faithfulness to Christ. Yeah, the biggest shift, right? Yeah. So we have a we have a shift from the trust in the covenant to the trust in the person. Yeah, I yes. think so. I think for most that's people, relation. that's the key thing. Yeah, interesting. And it, would it be that there's sort of a reciprocal trust arrangement too? Because you've you've obviously mentioned with bringing in the topic of creation, um, this notion that there's a certain thing or a certain sense in which God's entrusted creation to humanity as part of their vocation, perhaps. Um, it depends on how you read Genesis uh, one, I guess, in particular. It does, um, which, alas, doesn't have an explicit trust language, which I think yeah. is a mistake on its part. You know, that's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. How do you see the sort of functions of reciprocal trust and trustworthiness in the divine human relationship? Um, I guess differing. Um, I guess with respect to how humans trust God and God trusts humans. Yeah. I do think, I really do think that it goes both ways. There is trust in both directions. And I think um, God, in a sense, you can read the creation story in, in Genesis as saying that God in some way entrusts creation to humanity. Um, 
the if you think about things something like the parables of the end time in Matthew and Luke uh, they talk about the master going away and entrusting his slaves with his with the stewardship of everything he has and I think that's very readable as an analog for you know human beings being entrusted with creation with everything the master has and the master is going to come back who is Christ at the end time and give you are expected to give an accounting for your you know how you've dealt with um master's uh, wealth you know his uh, his material everything he has the whole creation so uh, so i think there is a theme of god entrusting and christ entrusting people with creation but also explicitly um the jews are entrusted with the logia of god israel's entrusted with the logia of god in romans um uh both individuals and christian groups are entrusted with the gospel explicitly in across the epistles across the whole of pauline corpus um, people are entrusted with specific gifts. Paul is entrusted with his preaching gift specifically. So people are entrusted by God, by Christ, with a lot of stuff, for sure. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, as we're saying all the time, they're invited to trust in both God and Christ. The relationship, it, it's asymmetric. It's reciprocal, but it's asymmetric. And that's okay because lots of trust relationships are asymmetric. Um, right. and one of the themes I've drawn on in this book is um, the, uh, the ethics of care, the, the, the work in moral philosophy on the ethics of care, because care ethicists really emphasize the importance of trust in relationships of care, but they're not, um, and they're, they're typically reciprocal, but they're not necessarily balanced. So for instance, the trust that a parent has to put in a child to accept the care that it needs um, is different from the trust the child has to put in a, care, in a parent to provide what it needs. Right. So, uh, so the trust relation doesn't have to be the same in both directions to be very real and very important. And that, I think, is a good model of what's going on between God and humanity. Really, we need different things. We ask for different things of each other, but it goes both ways. Right. Yeah. So, could you speak more to that, just to quickly follow up on the differences of, um, I guess, between trust, trustworthiness, entrustedness, and therapeutic trust? Then. Yes. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, trust is. Um, the basic relationship, I suppose it's, it's the term that covers all aspects of the basic relationship. Um, being, um, being trustworthy, when one person trusts another, they hope that the other person is trustworthy. They may be convinced that they're trustworthy, but they're not necessarily. It can be a, it can be a, a kind of a, a risk that you take on the other person that they're trustworthy. Um, but, um, uh, but you hope that another person is. And for yourself, if somebody entrusts you with something, then I suppose you hope that you will be trustworthy. You'll be able to carry it out. You'll be able to, to do what they want to. Uh, uh, you hope that you'll be trustworthy. Um, so, um, uh, so you and so one person entrusts something to another, hoping that they, it's a form of trust. Yeah. Um, some people would use trust and entrust um, interchangeably. You know, just two different forms of the word. Uh, but you hope that somebody will be trustworthy. The most distinct and, and very interesting one, I think, perhaps, is therapeutic trust. Because therapeutic trust is the kind of trust you put in somebody when you not only don't know whether they're going to be able to fulfill it, but you're fairly sure they won't. So the classic example which developed by a philosopher called Karen Jones um, is of the parent who goes away for the weekend 
uh, trusting that their child will not have a huge party and trash the house. <laughs> <laughs> and they are not at all sure that this is, is going to work out. They think that there's actually a very good chance the kid will have a party and trash the place. But they sort of hope that by showing trust in the child this time, the child will kind of realise that trust is an important thing to have and quite an important thing to respond to. And so even though the child screws up this time, it will sort of be encouraged or inspired to do better next time. So it's a sort of long-term investment. You trust somebody with something as a, you know, something they're gonna screw up on, kind of hoping that that they will get the point that trust matters and then they will do better in the future. Yeah. Um, and I think this is quite a powerful image for, um, uh, for what God does for humanity through Christ. Because I mentioned a minute ago, um, you know, on any reading, um, Jesus Christ is a highly unlikely Messiah. You know, Messiahs are usually imagined, they're kings, they're military leaders, they're high priests, they're, you know, they are big figures, big, powerful, important figures. And sometimes they're angels, they're supernatural figures, you know, they're God's self even, or they're a sort of local, you know, a, a local king who is not the king. But, you know, they're, they're big, important, powerful figures. Yeah. They are not normally a wandering rabbi from Galilee. Um, who he may think of himself as an eschatological pro uh, prophet, probably did. Um, not at all clear that anyone else thought that, you know, knew who he might be or thought that much of him at all. Um, this is not a typical Messiah. So if as a Christian you think that God has sent Christ into the world to be Messiah, yeah. this is a heck of a piece of therapeutic trust, it seems to me. This is God um, entrusting Christ to the world, knowing that many people in the world are not going to get this. They're not going to recognize Christ. They're not going to follow him. Um, but also trusting that, um, that Christ will prove so faithful, so trusting of God, so trustworthy to God. Um, he will be willing to suffer um, whatever he has to suffer because people don't realize he's, a, he's the Messiah. He will be willing even to go through death. You know, God is putting a lot of trust in Christ, you know, uh, in the human aspect of Christ, as it were, to um, uh, to be faithful and trustworthy. He's putting an enormous amount of trust in people to be able to respond to Christ, probably knowing that it's not going to work out in the near in the short term, but hoping perhaps that it's going to work out in the long term, that the cumulative effect of the life and the teaching and the actions of Jesus and the um, a willingness of Jesus to undergo even suffering and death and the resurrection experiences and then the experiences of people who come in contact with the apostles and their followers you know the cumulative effect of all that God is trusting is going to bring more and more people to God and so and as it were the Christian narrative is that through time the cumulative effect of all that does bring more and more people to God so in that sense I think you can see um, you can see God as exercising an enormous act of therapeutic trust hmm. um, in humanity and trusting that in the long term it's going to work out. Um, one difference, interesting difference between, I think, divine therapeutic trust and normal human therapeutic trust is that people have argued, philosophers who like the idea of therapeutic trust tend to think it will only work in the fairly short term. I'm not sure, but there is, that is quite a strong argument is made that you can't expect to trust somebody for something they don't, they fail in the short term, but 50 years down the line, they're suddenly going to get the point and become trustworthy. The idea is that the sort of the, the power of your trust will only last for a quite short time in their mind. You know. hmm. It will only inspire them in the near term. Hmm. Well, that can't be true of God. I think if we imagine God as, as taking this risk on humanity, we've got to imagine it playing out on the very, 
you know, in the very long term. Yeah. Um, we, we have to hope, I think, it, as Christians, we certainly have to hope that 2,000 years later, God is still, you know, committed to this. Yeah. <laughs> therapeutic trust that is going to work out. Yeah. So when you talk about therapeutic trust, um, I think it, our modern ears, we hear a lot of uncertainty um, in, in God's act in, act in sending Christ. Um, how is there a lot of uncertainty then if we're going to understand him having therapeutic trust in Christ and in humanity and hope that the plan is successful? Yeah, I think this is a really good question. And it is something that um, I think is probably quite important in my model. Um, I do think God is taking a risk. I do think it's uncertain. Um, I think, you know, I might, as a person of faith, I might say, if God wanted um, human beings to turn to God en masse, unequivocally, all at once, then, you know, what was needed was an absolutely enormous, unequivocal divine revelation. You know, the sort of thing nobody could make a mistake about. Mm -hmm. um, and this is not what God does. It's not mostly how God acts, indeed, in the world we think, we imagine, um, we hope. Um, so I do see it as a risk. And the reason why I think that is important is because it gives human beings a really important role in taking responsibility for responding to God and taking responsibility for living in partnership with God. And I think I want to see human beings in their trust relationship with God um, as understanding themselves in partnership with God and really having quite a lot of responsibility for God's world, for the social world, for, and that means for things like justice, for fairness, for equality, for respect for human beings. Um, so I, th I think I want to give human beings who trust God quite a lot of responsibility for the world and therefore a lot of answerability too. Um, I'm always, this, this goes beyond what I've talked about in this book really, but I am quite nervous of some traditional theodicies which say, um, you know, how can God allow people to suffer, for instance? Now, we need to distinguish here between sort of natural suffering and human-caused suffering. And natural suffering is a, is a whole other thing. You know, the creation is what it is, and I don't understand why we die, but I'm prepared to accept it as part of it. It's the package we have. It's the kind of world we have. Mm -hmm. However, human-caused suffering is a different thing. And I have quite a problem with theodicies that say, how can God allow us to suffer the consequences of our own evil? Because it does... On a very common sense level, it just does slightly seem to me that God has given us quite a lot of steer, quite a lot of teaching, quite a lot of direction, quite a lot of commandments to tell people, quite a lot of examples of how to behave well as human beings, responsibly, respectfully, lovingly, caringly, with justice. I am not sure that when we fail, it is appropriate to turn around and say, how God allow this? I think it might be more appropriate to say, how do we step up and take responsibility for doing better? Mm -hmm. I think my, now there's a kind of element of, of, of rather untheologized sort of just my reacting to the tradition here. Mm -hmm. I think, but I, I also think I want to develop an idea of, of trust between God and humanity, which does actually say, does in seriousness say, um, people are being entrusted with a job to do and it actually is up to people to step up 
on corporately and not everybody can step up on every front. Not everybody gets everything right. Not everybody has the capacity to get every aspect of, of human life right. But between us, I think we might be entrusted with getting it righter than we do, really. Um, so I do, yeah, I, um, I think that is quite important to me. Thanks again for joining us on the Lagos Institute podcast based at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. Please consider leaving us a review on iTunes and don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. You can find out more about the Lagos Institute by visiting our website found in the description. Thank you.